Maybe God wants you to think about something else, but these are starting points. Then there's a quote. And this week, Spencer Nickel sent me an email with this quote, and I asked him if it was all right if I used it in the uh, bullet, and I just want to read it because it's a really powerful quote. It says, The greatest need in our world today is simply this. Godly men and women who possess and display a quality of life that reflects the character of God and provokes curiosity in others about how they too can know God as well. Powerful, powerful quote. Now, Mary Beth, who does our bulletin, typed this up, as she, as she does every week. Mary Beth does a great job. But when she initially typed the quote in, she typed in that we should possess or display a quality of life that reflects the character of God and provokes curiosity in otters. <laughs> About how they too can know God well. Let's open up to Romans chapter 11. There is a ton of stuff in here. We're not going to get into a detailed study of this entire chapter. We are going to read through the entire chapter, but the focus of the chapter will come towards the latter part. Because there's just so much in here, so much to ponder, so much to chew on as Christians. Just as human beings, really. Uh, Anybody who's interested in how God interacts with people, and specifically with people He has chosen. Of course, just by way of review. Chapter 9, Paul begins this discussion about the Jewish nation and what is going to happen to the Jews because the gospel has come to the Gentiles. See, the Jews believed that they were God's chosen people. In fact, that is accurate. God chose Abraham out of the world to be a man who would raise up a nation through his son Isaac, the chosen one, through Isaac's son Jacob, and ultimately through Jacob's 12 sons. A nation was created, was formed. These were the people of God, and it was through the Jews that the law came, the ordinances came, the temple worship came, all of that. And the Jews had this perspective that they were God's special people. And they were. And so there's this conundrum. What's going on now? The Gentiles are coming into the faith. They are beginning to believe in the Messiah of God, Jesus Christ. So what happens to the Jews? And we saw that God is sovereign in chapter 9. And God works sovereignly in the affairs of men. He doesn't force things to happen, but through the free will of men, the choices we make, God orchestrates His ultimate will to come about. In chapter 10, we saw that for both the Gentile and the Jew, salvation comes through faith. And faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. So it's the same today in this dispensation we are in. It's the same for the Jew and for the Gentile. We come to salvation, to, to God through Jesus Christ, through faith in the work that He has done. And so beginning in chapter 11... Paul asks a question. Did God then reject His people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject His people whom He foreknew. Don't you know what the Scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed Your prophets and torn down Your altars. I am the only one left, and they are trying to kill me. What was God's answer to him? 
I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. What then? What the people of Israel sought so earnestly, they did not obtain. The elect among them did, but the others were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see and ears that could not hear to this very day. And David says, may their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. So here Paul is talking about a time in Israel's history where there was a great apostasy. Ahab was the king of the northern kingdom. His wife Jezebel was a worshiper of Baal. And there was a great darkness in the land. And God sent prophets. And he sent specifically Elijah and Elisha. And here we're talking about Elijah. And Elijah thinks he's all by himself. He thinks that the whole northern kingdom has forsaken God. And God reminds him, no, I have set aside a remnant who do have faith, who do believe. There's 7,000 of them, Elijah. Likewise, Paul is pointing out, in the time that he was writing, there was a remnant who had come to Christ by faith. Of course, the church was Jewish in its origin. On the day of Pentecost, when Peter preached, it was all Jews who came to faith. 3,000 that day. Ultimately, the Jewish church gave way, though, to the Gentile church. We saw that beginning to happen in Acts chapter 8 with the Ethiopian eunuch. We saw it in Acts chapter 10 with Cornelius, the Roman centurion. And then finally, in Acts chapter 15, the council at Jerusalem, where they began to say, God is working among the Gentiles. The Gentiles are responding to the message of the gospel. They are believing in Jesus Christ. So let's not hinder that. Let's let it move forward. But the bulk of the nation of Israel rejected Christ. And that's what Paul is quoting here from Deuteronomy and from the Psalms, where God knew that when he sent his son, there would be a rejection but he also knew that there would be some who would believe and that the people of Israel would maintain that remnant throughout the history of the church. And it's been true. It's definitely been true. There has always been a Jewish presence in the Christian church. Not a large one, sometimes almost imperceptible, but there has always been a Jewish presence in the church. So Paul is now talking about what is going to happen then in the future to Israel, to the Jewish people. If they're only a remnant now, will they ever experience a restoration? Will they ever again be a nation who are given over to God? Now stop and think about this for just a minute. Paul's writing to the Romans sometime in the 50s AD, probably 20, 25 years after the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Israel's still a nation at this point. Titus and his Roman legions have not come to destroy and sack Jerusalem. The Israelites have not yet been dispersed. So they're still a nation. But we all know we have the benefit of hindsight, don't we? Looking back, we know what history has wrought among the Jews. In 70 AD, they were dispersed. Jerusalem was destroyed. They had been wanderers throughout the world for almost 2,000 years. Amazingly, supernaturally, miraculously, 
the Jews maintained their identity. Stop and think about that for a minute. No other people group, no other ethnic nation has ever been dispersed, destroyed as a nation, and survived like the Jews have. Right there is testimony to the existence of a sovereign God. Because in 1948, what happened? The state of Israel was reestablished. Now, of course, there's been a very uh, interesting history since 1948. A lot of conflict, battles. And yet, through several wars, through all kinds of attempts to destroy Israel since 1948, they still exist, and they will continue to exist as a nation. And that's where we're going to get into the really good stuff. Because really, it's not about Israel, church. Israel's future is important, and Israel does have a future, but it's really not about Israel. It's about God and his faithfulness. And that's how this message applies to you and to me, because God is faithful. So Paul writes in verse 11, Again, I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? So even here, Paul is beginning to point out that the Israelites have a future. They will once again be restored as a nation. I'm talking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, that is, when they rejected Christ, the Gentiles came into the world or came into the faith, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? So Paul is prophesying here a future acceptance, a future inclusion, a future restoration of the nation of Israel. If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. If some of the branches have been broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. In other words, our history is Jewish in origin. You will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief. And you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Now, Paul is speaking here with regards to groups of people. He's not speaking regarding individuals. He's talking about the Jews as a nation, and he's talking about the Gentiles as a people. And God's dealing with the Jews and the Gentiles. So he's talking about the fact that the Jews rejected, they were the root, they rejected Christ, and the Gentiles were grafted in, brought into the family of faith. But there is coming a time, Paul says, when they will be grafted in again themselves. And we need to remind ourselves that faith is the key. We don't have a special position, just as the Jews did not have a special position. God relates to people by faith. It is faith, it says in Romans, or excuse me, Hebrews 11:6 that pleases God. So, 
the Gentiles can be broken off also, just as the Jews were, if they don't continue in faith. And actually, if you'll study 2 Thessalonians, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4, get in there, dig in, you'll see people that the church will have a falling away, an apostasy, just as the Jews did, where they move away from true faith and trust in God. But that's a study for another time. Verse 22, Consider therefore the kindness and sternness of God, Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. Again, if we don't remain in faith, if we don't approach God in a faith-based way, then we do not have a relationship with him. We cannot please God through our works. We cannot come to God and say to him, you owe me. God is always previous. God is always the one who gives. We receive. That's what Paul is saying. But if they do not persist, and here's where we're going to get, get detailed. If they do not persist in unbelief, talking about the Jews, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature were grafted in to a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? So there is going to come a time, Paul says, where the Jews are going to be grafted back into the family of faith. They are going to come to a belief in an acceptance of Jesus Christ as their Messiah on a wholesale basis. And that's where we begin in verse 25. And this is where we're going to get some detail. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery. So Paul is saying to his readers, I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm going to say to you. Pay attention. A mystery is something that simply has not yet been revealed. God is now revealing it through the pen of Paul. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. In other words, so that you don't take the posture that Israel did. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. So Paul is saying that the Gentile uh, nations are the primary focus of God during this dispensation. And that's true. The gospel has gone out to every nation, being preached to all peoples, not primarily just to the Jews. But look at this. There's this hardening that has occurred will occur until the full number of Gentiles has come in. Jesus said that Jerusalem will be trod underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is completed. So there is a time of the Gentiles that God is working with. Now, back in Daniel chapter 9, there is an amazing, amazing prophecy. And I'm going to turn there and read it for you. Daniel chapter 9, the 77s. Many of you have heard me speak of this. Some of you have not. But it's a powerful, powerful scripture with regards to God's interaction with the Jewish nation. Paul says, while I was speaking and praying, or excuse me, Daniel says, while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in earlier vision, came to me in a swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you begin to pray, a word went out which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. 
So here we go. Seventy sevens are decreed for your people. That is, for the Jewish nation. Seventy sevens. And for your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So 77s, 70 Shabuim, literally in the Hebrew language. 77-year periods. The, the, the term sev, Shabuim is uh, based upon the context. So 77s could be 77 70 periods of seven years, 70 periods of seven weeks. It could be a lot of things, but we know now in context that it is referring to 77-year periods in the Jewish calendar. And, and the angel says, know and understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens, or a total of 69 sevens. So going by the Jewish lunar calendar, of 360 days, what you come to here is a period of 173,880 days. Now, we're given a very specific starting point here. It's from the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. That word went out from Artaxerxes, the Persian ruler, in 445 B.C., in the month of March, according to our calendar. So if you count out 173,880 days, guess where you arrive? 32 A.D., Passover. The time the anointed ruler comes. Now, pay attention to this. After the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. That is, the Roman legions that did, in fact, destroy Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Desolations have been decreed. So, at that point... At the point of the cutting off of the Messiah, God's dealing with the Jewish nation in 70 A.D. is cut off. And the time of the Gentiles begins. And that's what's been happening over these past two millennia. The time of the Gentiles. But Paul says in Romans chapter 11 that once the fullness of the Gentiles is completed or come in, then God once again will begin to deal with the Jewish nation. So if Israel has been reestablished beginning in 1948, I suggest to you that we're all on borrowed time. Because listen to this. The ruler who will come from the people, the, the, the Romans, he will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. So there's one final seven-year period that remains in these 77s. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering, and at the temple he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out upon him. Talking about the Antichrist who will come, who will confirm a covenant with the Jews, allowing them to rebuild their temple. But in the middle of that seven-year period, he will put an end to the sacrifices that are occurring in there. So, there is a seven-year period where God will once again very specifically deal with the nation of Israel. So again, as I pointed out, Israel has been reestablished as a nation. This could happen at any time. Israel recaptured control of Jerusalem in 1967. So they were a nation in 48. They became in control of the capital, Jerusalem, the eternal city, in 67. So when will the end Come. When will the fullness of the Gentiles occur? We don't know. 
But it could be today. It could be tomorrow. But when that happens, God will once again begin to deal with Israel. And it says here, back in Romans chapter 11, verse 26, and in this way, all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. That is speaking of Jesus Christ. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. So their apostasy, the fact that they have rejected him, will no longer be the case. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So it's talking about national Israel at the time that Christ returns. At the end of that seven-year period. Jacob's trouble, the time of great tribulation. At the end of that seven years, it says in Revelation chapter 19 that Jesus Christ will return from heaven. His second coming. And it talks about an army of saints returning with him. That is you and me. We have been taken up into heaven with him in the rapture. We're coming back for his second coming. And we're coming to Israel. We're coming to the nation of Israel where there will be a battle in the valley of Megiddo, the valley of Armageddon. And it's interesting, in Hosea chapter 6, Hosea writes, Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us that we may live in his presence. Now, remember, in Psalm 90, and also in Peter's epistle, that a day to the Lord is equated as what? Say it out loud. A day unto the Lord is as a thousand years. Nothing in the Bible is without meaning. Nothing in the Bible is without significance. So if you take this passage from Hosea, where the prophet writes that though we have been torn to pieces, he will heal us. Though we have been injured, he will bind up our wounds. After two days, he will revive us. How many years have passed since the destruction of Jerusalem? About 2,000. Coming on 2,000. Two days. On the third day, he will restore us. Speaking of the millennial reign of Christ from Jerusalem that we read about in numerous places throughout the scriptures. It talks about in the second to the last book of the Old Testament, Zechariah, about the return of the Messiah. I'm just going to read this to you. In Zechariah 12, The Lord who stretches out the heavens, who lays the foundation of the earth, who forms the human spirit within a person declares, I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup that sends all the surrounding peoples reeling. Judah will be besieged as well as Jerusalem. On that day when all the nations of the earth are gathered against her, I will make Jerusalem an immovable rock for all the nations. All who try to move it will injure themselves. On that day I will strike every horse with panic and every rider with madness. Later, in Zechariah chapter 12, he writes, And I will pour out on the house of David, that is, of course, speaking of the Jewish people, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. On that day, the weeping in Jerusalem will be as great as the weeping of Hadad-Rimnon in the plains of Megiddo. Talking about the battle of Armageddon. It says in 
Zechariah 14, verse 2, I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. The city will be captured, the houses ransacked, the women raped. Half of the city will go into exile, but the rest of the people will be not taken from the city. The Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley. So this is what's happening at this time. This is why Israel will be saved. You read this in, in Romans 11:26 about all Israel being saved, the deliverer coming from Zion, turning godliness away from Jacob. And you wonder, how can that happen? Well, if you look at the prophecies in the Old Testament, you understand. That's powerful stuff. Imagine the Lord returning in the eastern sky with an army behind him. Imagine the nations gathered against Jerusalem to do battle with the Jewish people. Imagine the Lord setting His foot upon the Mount of Olives and the Mount splitting in two. Now, if I'm a Jew living at that time, I know who I'm going to trust in. That's what Paul's talking about. There will be an ultimate restoration of the Jewish people. They will be grafted back in to the family of faith, to the tree of life. As far as the gospel is concerned, Paul writes, they are enemies on, for your sake, but as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound everyone, Jew and Gentile, over to disobedience that he may have mercy on them all. So Paul's just overcome at this point when he begins to think of the sovereignty of God, the plan of God, the ultimate outcome of God's uh, will with regards to humankind. He begins this doxology in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So here's the message and here's the application to each one of us here this morning. Paul's been talking about the, the Jewish people, the nation of Israel. We've seen the prophecies being fulfilled. Jerusalem now under the control of the Jewish people. God, as he promised, once again beginning to deal with them. He is faithful. In, in Genesis chapter 12, God made a promise to Abraham that in him or in his seed, all the nations of the world would be blessed. Well, who was the seed of Abraham? Was it Isaac or was it someone else? It was someone else. It was Jesus. The seed that God was promising that would come from Abraham was the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Later, in Genesis 13 and again in Genesis 17, God promises to Abraham. He swears by himself, because he has no other name to swear greater than his own. He swears by himself that the land of Israel will be given to the Jewish people as an everlasting possession. And God is being faithful to keep that promise. God has made a promise to you and to me. His gifts and his calls are without revocation. God has begun a work in each person in this building. It, the work may be at a different place in development. 
Some of you are just beginning to have your spirits stir. You're hearing this message and you're thinking, whoa, prophecy fulfilled. Right before my very eyes, the nation of Israel at the center of geopolitical conversation. And I'm living at this time. And it's all pointing to Jesus Christ. Your spirit's beginning to stir. God's speaking to you. Others of you have been walking with the Lord for a long time. You're in ministry. God has been carrying you through storms and he has brought you to this place this morning. I want to leave you with this verse. It's out of Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. Look it up, memorize it, hold it as your own. He who began a good work in you, that is God who has begun the good work in you, will be faithful to complete it. Just as he has brought Israel back into existence after two, almost two millennium of wandering, so God will be faithful to finish the work that he has begun in you. Wherever that work is at, if he's just beginning to speak to you, or if he's saying to you, I will never leave you or forsake you, you will get through this. He will be faithful to complete the work that he has begun. Heavenly Father, I thank you for that promise. As we dedicated Lila this morning, the promise is always fresh. It's always new. Each one of us here this morning has a beginning and a course and a purpose that you have outlined that we should walk in that. I'm mindful of that passage in Ephesians chapter 2. It's by grace we are saved through faith, that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, lest any man should boast. And we are your workmanship, created for good works in Christ Jesus that you have prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Lord, I pray for this congregation, every person, every soul, from little child to elder saint, that you would confirm in our hearts your faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and we're going to conclude with the hymn, To God Be the Glory. I got a little carried away. We are still going to receive an offering. Let's pray as we prepare for offering. Lord, I pray that you would just uh, prepare our hearts to, uh, to take offering. Um, forgive us for the ways that we corrupt this, the, uh, that we don't give out of legalistic obligation or, or expecting something, but that we just give out of just the realization that all we have comes from you and that you provide for us and, and uh, that as we give back that we just trust you with it. Amen.
Alicia says, now we can stand <laughs> and sing, to God be the glory. Great things he hath done. Let's gather around the circle and have a time of worship and testimony. I just want to start off by saying a little birdie told me that today is Ruthie's birthday. Happy birthday, Ruthie. And yesterday was Steve's birthday. So a couple of youngsters in our midst. All right, testimony, prayers, uh, joys, concerns, anyone? Okay. Yes. 
Amen. Definitely. Thanks to the choir and to Alicia and to all the hard work that those guys put on. Thumbs up to you guys for sure. What a blessing. What a blessing. Others? Yes, Ellie. Absolutely. Ellie and Tony traveling to the Netherlands, prayers for their, her family and their witness among them. Absolutely. Chris. Okay, hiking over the Hartman Rocks. Yes. We're really blessed Judah. to have our, our grandkids with us today. And Hannah's birthday is today, the 78-year-old. Last week, we were in Nairobi, and we celebrated last week. Woohoo! Lots of blessings for the Browns. Lots of blessings for them today. Congratulations, you guys. Oh, someone, I was talking with someone, what's the 40th? Is it Ruby? How was it for you guys? <laughs> oh, that's neat. Oh, yes. Donna. Is there a person in this congregation who has not eaten a cookie baked by Nina Wilkinson? <laughs> <laughs> no. It's my great pleasure to have been a part of this congregation for 15 and a half years. You've all been our, our church family. You've seen me through so many things. And Thomas and I loved every minute that we were part of this We're going to take a moment just for a special